Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Today we're going to talk about the hanging judge of Fort Smith, Charles Isaac Parker. Really? The hanging judge. Was it Fort Smith or Fort Worth? Fort Smith. Really? Yep. Okay. So... The time period is right after the Civil War. The Indian Territory, which actually is kind of present-day Oklahoma, it was known as, quote, robber's roost. It was a great place for assorted bandits, cutthroats, killers. Generally, just bad people were happy to be there. Sounds like Washington, D.C. <laughs> but it was freedom <laughs> from the restraints of the law. In this area, bounded by Texas, Kansas, and Arkansas, there were only Indian towns, Indian police, and Indian courts. Now, the Indian courts had no jurisdiction over white men, or even over an Indian who maybe has served as a white man's accomplice. So, instead, jurisdiction belonged to the Court of the United States for the Western District of Arkansas, and it was presided over in the early 1870s by an incompetent, corrupt weakling with a tendency for accepting bribes, and during his brief tenure, more than 100 murders occurred in the territory. So this guy was supposedly supposed to be a judge. Who was this? No, the name? Didn't, na- didn't make a they name. They didn't, didn't name say. him? No, but he was obviously took made a lot of money on bribes, but never did bring people to justice. I see. So, in dealing with this outrageous situation, President Ulysses S. Grant, a man not generally known for his good judgment, and I'm quoting this from the book, okay, or his wise appointments for once came up with exactly the right man for the job. His name, Charles Isaac, or they called him Ike, Parker. Really? He appointed him to the federal bench at Fort Smith, which is actually on the very border of Arkansas and Indian Territory. Now, Parker at this time, was only 36 years old at the time. He had already enjoyed a pretty good career as a prosecuting attorney, a uh, circuit court judge, and in his private life, he was cheerful, outgoing, he loved kids, he was devoted to civic duties such as uh, service on the school board. In his public life, he proved to be more than equal to the task that was assigned to him. Now, this is where he gets his reputation. In his 21 years at Fort Smith, Parker tried more than 13,000 people in his court. 13,000? 13,000. He often worked uh, six days a week from 8 o'clock in the morning until it got dark. Of this 13,000 people, nearly three-fourths were convicted. And of this group, 344 were convicted of crimes that carried the death penalty. Now, of these unfortunate 344, Parker sentenced 172 to hang, 88 eventually died on the gallows, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Eventually, you said hang and then eventually died on the gallows. What's the difference? <laughs> well, they didn't all go to hang. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so Parker held court in the first floor of a two-story brick building that had once served as a barracks and was located inside the military post. Uh, in the basement below the courtroom was a filthy, stinking, rat-infested jail, which soon became so crowded that he had to have a new jail constructed. And thanks to his... Uh, 
overactive enforcement policies, the new jail was quickly filled to overflowing. Wow. So they were arresting all kinds of people everywhere and all over and bringing them into what, it. What did the crimes range from that he would take before the bench? I, I don't know. I'm assuming just anything. Really? I mean, from cattle rustling to thieving to stealing to oh. robbery to anything. Okay. So now to, here's what he did, though. To keep the jails full, Parker employed a small army of officers to wander around in more than 70,000 acres of Indian territory and to locate, arrest and bring in the criminals they found. So, more than 200 deputy marshals worked for Parker, so you can see how the jail could have filled up Was there any legal representation for the accused? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But it was dangerous work because over the years, out of these 200 guys, these deputy marshals, 65 of the deputies died in the performance of their duties. Wow. So, it was, you know, it's kind of like a, sort of like an official bounty hunter kind of deputy marshal type person. But here's what they did. They worked on a fee-based system that paid them 10 cents a mile, one way, for serving papers or bringing in a prisoner. For serving a warrant, they were paid $2.50. Guardsmen who accompanied the deputies were paid a flat rate of $2 a day. Deputies were allowed to supplement their incomes by collecting fines for small offenses and some. Unfortunately, a little better than the criminals they were sent to apprehend. They kind of exploited this uh, source of funds. I mean, you know, if you're out in the middle of nowhere and this guy comes up and is going to arrest you and you say, hey, I got 20 bucks I'll give you if you'll just turn the other way. I got a question for you, and you know everything. Yes. Ten cents a mile reimbursement. How would they figure that? They had odometers on their saddles. <laughs> I don't know how they, as the crow flies, as the I, well, the wagon, you, a wagon. You should have thought of that. You know, they and I think I did say years ago on the Oregon Trail, they had wagons that had a gear-driven system of counting the revolutions of the wheel. Yeah. So I'm going to guess they must have, I, I don't know how they figured that. Because they were always on horseback. I will not interrupt you. (laughs) So, anyway, this habit was not the sort to create a climate of goodwill among even the law-abiding citizens of the territory, such as there were. Many of Parker's deputies traveled in groups of four or five for their own protection. As as you see, a lot of them still got killed. And they took with them, here's what they did. They had a wagon that served as shelter arsenal to carry all their ammunition and uh, a portable jail in this wagon okay can you picture that no and for when uh and they were actually some of the uh, prisoners got wounded in the course of the activity so they got to ride in the wagon <laughs> now the healthy pres- prisoners were forced to walk oh boy you know why not you know they're not going to get away if they're walking so the deputies like to keep the prisoners healthy and they rarely shot to kill unless absolutely necessary and this was not because they were kind the deputies were paid an arrest fee for living prisoners but nothing for a corpse didn't do any good to bring in a dead dead person unless the victim had to be wanted dead or alive then it was okay to shoot him now you're kind of a cold individual aren't you (laughs) quite often the deputies would even force the witnesses to a crime to travel to fort smith with them to get ready for the trial now knowing that it would be difficult if not impossible to locate them later this was another practice not calculated to endear the deputies to the respectable residents of the territory. In other words, if you're out 200 miles away 
and some guy gets caught and there's some witnesses and you're saying, okay, you need to come to Fort Smith to testify, that's not going to go over real well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, anyway, Parker earned his reputation as the hanging judge almost as soon as he began his work in Fort Smith. Now, had the 88 hangings for which he was responsible responsible been spread out over his entire judgeship, they might not have caused that much of a commotion. After all, the average was only a little more than four a year. So it really wasn't a lot of hangings, really. Unfortunately, the hangings sometimes came in batches, though. And in the first session of Parker's court, 91 defendants appeared before him. 15 were convicted of murder, and 8 were sentenced to hang. One of the eight had his sentence commuted to life imprisonment and was later pardoned. And another was shot in his attempt to escape. The remaining six went to the gallows together. All six. Really? To the gallows. And we're going to talk about that a little. And what a very, very nice gallows it was. Really? Nice. 20 feet long with a cross beam of a 12-inch timber. It was roomy. You know, you don't want to crowd people, right? Is that what that says, is it was roomy? (laughs) Yeah, it does. It was roomy and strong enough to accommodate 12 men, though six were the most ever to swing at one time. So, you know, it was capable of doing a lot. Do you have a picture of that in that book? I don't, I don't. But the newspapers estimated that as many as 5,000 people crowded the streets of Fort Smith, which only had a population of 2,500, arriving in wagon loads from 40 and 50 miles away to view the grisly spectacle of the hanging. Let me ask you about that. In some of the old westerns, you hear about how they used to have picnics and all that kind of stuff the day of the hanging. What was the matter with our society that they would look at something like a hanging as kind of a festival? I I don't know. (laughs) But... uh, you know, it was a spectacle, I guess. they figured, I don't know, maybe if someone thought, this guy deserves to die, I want to see him die. Yeah, I, I guess. Know. So anyway, at precisely 9.30 in the morning, the six men were marched onto the scaffold after a brief ceremony which included the singing of hymns, you know. And the last words of the condemned men, the trap was sprung by a guy by the name of George Maladon. And I'm going to talk a little more about him, okay? He's kind of got an interesting story. So George Maladon was Parker's very small but efficient hangman, and the six black-hooded figures dropped to their deaths as as George pulled the trigger, or so to speak. Did the all the people that were being hung, uh, I've read that some of them said, no, I want to look at the public and let them feel uh, my pain by not wearing the hood. I, you Is know, that true? It doesn't true? say anything about that. Oh, okay. It doesn't, so I don't know. Uh, now, from this time on, Parker was branded as a heartless Man, despite the fact that he actually had wept openly in court as he pronounced his first de- first death sentence, so he was he was a kind-hearted guy, sort of. He yeah. just he just wanted to make sure things got done, yeah. you know. And you know that would be a pretty good deterrent from others, you know. Pretty good, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, it is certainly true that Parker had little sympathy with theories of what they called rehabilitation. He didn't think some of these bad, bad guys could be rehabilitated. We need more Parkers today. (laughs) But he believed in quick and irrevocable punishment as the surest deterrent to crime, and that he was often heard to remark that the criminal, when born, had doubtless come into the world with the mark of Cain stamped on his forehead. Okay? And it is true that Parker came to resent the appeals process. In fact, for the first 14 years of his judgeship, 
Parker enjoyed the remarkable position of being the final word of justice. No appeals. From his court, there was no appeal, not even to the Supreme Court of the United States. In effect, Parker's word was the law. You're painting a picture of where you you seem to put the onus on him, but there had to be a trial. There had to be a prosecuting and a defense team. But it doesn't say too much about the defense attorneys, does it? Well... But they had they had witnesses that would come uh, just like a regular trial. So yeah. I think when the the uh, everything was put out there, the uh, you know that was the, what he had to do. Mm-hmm. You know, but anyway, later as the federal government continued to kind of shrink the area of his judgeship uh, and open the court to the appeals process. Parker spoke, spoke out, especially on one occasion when a jail guard was murdered by a notorious outlaw who had remained in jail long after his established execution date, thanks to an appeal. In his last seven years on the bench, Parker saw 50 of his 78 death sentences reversed on appeal. Justice was becoming modern and civilized, so to speak. Parker was kind of a remnant of the dying uh, frontier, an embarrassment to the forward-looking legal establishment. And uh, anyway, Parker, he was getting older by now, and a victim of diabetes and exhaustion. I mean, you saw how how long he worked every every week. But Charles Isaac Parker went home to bed after 21 years as a federal judge just two months before Indian Territory was to be removed entirely from his jurisdiction. So his area became much, much smaller. Anyway, he remained sick at home on September 1st, 1896, when the Court of the United States for the Western District of Arkansas was officially adjourned forever. Two months later, Parker died. So that was kind of the the end. But I told you I want to talk about this George Maladin. Yeah, the guy that pulled the switch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... You know, the Court of the United States for the Western District of Arkansas, otherwise known as Indian Territory in the latter two-thirds of the century, 19th century, required an exceptionally efficient hangman. Yeah, that's something knew what they were doing. Thanks to the hard-nosed sentencing of practices of Judge Parker, so the executions were carried out in 88 of those cases, most of them performed by George Maladin. He was a Bavarian immigrant. It was said that Maladin never had a customer complain. I don't even know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody complained after they were hung. So Maladin, who stood just 5 feet 5 inches tall, was not a man to trifle with. In addition to his unquestioned artistry on the scaffold, he also shot and killed two prisoners who attempted to escape from the Fort Smith jail. He didn't mess around with with George. Mm-hmm. He was a man who took pride in a job well done, and he preferred to use well-oiled, hand-woven Kentucky hemp ropes. He was an artist, Zeb. He always took care to place the traditional hangman's knot behind the doomed man's left ear, since he believed this location to be the most effective as well as the most merciful. When Maladin dropped the trap, referred to certain uh, hard cases as, quote, the gates of hell, the careful placement of the knot caused the hangman, hanged man's neck to snap the instant 
He hit the end of the rope, which spared the guy a slow, strangling death. Yeah. So he, he knew what he was doing. Now, the scaffold itself was designed with efficiency and economy in mind. On two occasions, Maladin pulled the trap with six condemned men standing on the scaffold. At times, he dealt with groups of five, four, maybe three. You know, you don't want to waste time here. Maladin was th- a thrifty man. He used the same ropes again and again. <laughs> Now, there are photographs of Maladin shown uh, uh, a man with kind of a receding hairline. Can you picture this? He's got a beard. He's standing very rigidly and staunch, staring at the camera. But he did have a sense of humor of source. He once told the woman that he was never troubled by the spirits of the men he'd hanged, since the ghost didn't hang around. Well, he was a Johnny Carson of his <laughs> he was time. A funny guy, you know. <laughs> he could also be sentimental in his own peculiar way. When the man responsible for killing his own daughter was arrested, Maladin asked for the honor of hanging him personally. Okay, really? a little bit of a tragedy right there. Yeah. When the city of Fort Smith decided to destroy the gallows and put the memory of his gruesome business uh, behind, uh, Maladin begged to be allowed to keep. The, keep the the gallows. It was a you know. He wanted it as yeah, a keepsake, yeah. but the city refused, and through the greater part, uh, the most of it was actually burned. Maladin was able to retrieve a few cherished ropes and pieces of the scaffold, and and parts of the mechanism that dropped. And he took these prizes on tour and charged the curious public admission to view these last grim relics from the gates of hell. You know. <sighs> That wouldn't go over well today. I don't think so. <laughs> you know, oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, I, now, I did, what year did he pass away? Uh, it doesn't say. I see. But remember, uh, I told the story a long time ago about Black Jack Ketchum, who yeah. the rope stretched during the night. And the yeah. next day when they hung him, his head popped off. Yeah, you did. So, yeah, you want to have a guy like Maladin that knows the art yeah. of... The hanging. What, what does a guy do that's convicted to hang? I mean, he go up and ask a guy for credentials or what? <laughs> well, I, I think maybe they knew that George would be the guy. You know, and we we joke about it, but what a gruesome way yeah. to possibly not die. Yeah. Well, I've told the story a long time ago. Out here, uh, north of us, over towards the Shoshone area, they had no trees. Right. So they brought two wagons in, close tongue to tongue, raised the wagon uh, tongues up, yep. so they formed like a teepee, yeah. and they hanged the guy from that. Oh, my goodness. So... Some guys got a little creative with the hanging process, but so if you're a bad guy and you see about six or seven guys coming after you with a great big soft rope, just run as fast fast as you can can run. (laughs) So that's hanging Judge Parker and his good friend George Maladin. Holy smokes! Things uh, somewhat need to go back to that era to where people respect the law and order. Well. You know, it is what it is, and back then they did just kind of basically, and the sad thing is, I'm sure there were some that were hung or yeah. shot that weren't guilty, yeah. you know, and yeah. there are cases, and... Uh, you want to get a real feeling, I think, for what happened at a hanging in the old days, watch the movie with Steve McQueen about Tom Horn. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Believe me. Well... That's that's the story for today. Well, you yeah. did, you did it again. I mean, such a cheerful story to have. Well, you know. <laughs> 
Judge Parker was a good guy. Oh yeah, he was. He was kind-hearted. Yeah, but he was firm. Oh, absolutely. <laughs>